Hello world, this is JavaScript Air, and I am your host Kent C. Dodds, and today we're going to be talking about Vue.js. It is spelled V-U-E, but it's pronounced Vue, so that's good to know. Um, so before we get into the show, I have my regular announcements. A special thanks to our sponsors, our uh, premier sponsors, Egghead.io, and um, they have a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Uh, check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and Elm, and CSS, and like anything about that. And then Frontend Masters has is a record recorded expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchro asynchronous and functional JS, as well as lots of other awesome courses on front-end topics. I think Kyle Simpson just released like two uh, new workshops uh, recently, maybe today. So check that out. Um, and then Track.js reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers notice them, and with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And then Wallaby.js is an intelligent and super-fast test runner for JavaScript that continuously runs your tests. It reports code coverage and other results directly in your code editor immediately as you change your code. Check them out at wallabyjs.com. And finally, CodeCove.io is code coverage done right. Reduce technical debt by visualizing test performance and faster code review. CodeCove is highly integrated with GitHub and provides browser extensions. Learn more at CodeCove.io. And I should mention that CodeCove integrates well with GitHub, but it also integrates with other Git um, hosting services, I think like GitLab and a couple others. So check them out. They're awesome. Um, cool. So we don't have any panelists on the show yet. Maybe some will show up a little bit later, um, and we'll say hi to them. But um, we do have some awesome guests. And so uh, first we have Taylor Otwell. Hi. And Evan Yu. Hello. Awesome. And uh, let's go ahead and give each of you a chance to introduce yourselves and what you all have to do with Vue. So Taylor, why don't we go with you first? Okay, well I'm kind of the um, JavaScript outsider uh, member of the group today. I'm actually the creator of a PHP framework called Laravel, and my relationship to Vue is basically one of just being a Vue evangelist and kind of, um, you know, I chat with them and sometimes about PHP community and kind of how their approach to JavaScript and what they're talking about um, as they do their front-end work. So uh, I work on Laravel full-time. Uh, it's kind of my full-time gig now. That's super awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, this is a podcast about the like the web in general, the whole web platform. So we're happy to have a PHP uh, guy on to to chat with us. And and thank you for your work on Laravel. I'm sure that there are tons of people who have greatly benefited from that framework. So thanks. Uh, cool. Now, Evan, why don't we have you go uh, next? Hello, uh, I'm Evan Yu. Uh, I work on VJS and. Uh, previously, I was uh, at Meteor, and before that, I worked a bit over two years at Google Creative Lab. So most of my work is involved around uh, JavaScript, front-end, creative coding. Uh, so uh, currently, I'm exploring opportunities to work on Vue full-time. Uh, still figuring out what to do next, but just uh, I just had a newborn baby uh, a month ago. So congratulations! Yeah, so, yeah busy with the baby for now. Uh, while figuring out what to do next. Yeah. Awesome. And we were just uh, joined by Dan. Hi, Dan. Hey there. Joining us from a, a coffee shop, I think. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so let's get into our topic for the day. Um, so, uh, oh, and I think I totally, totally forgot to uh, do a couple announcements. So if you're watching live, you can ask questions of Taylor or Evan or anybody about um, the topic of the day um, with the hashtag JSAirQuestion. Just tweet um, at that hashtag and we will answer your questions maybe during the show or at the end of the show um, or after the show. Uh, so definitely reach out to us with that hashtag. And then next week we're kind of doing a JavaScript frameworks um, thing right now and so um, today it's Vue.js. Uh, next week it's going to be the Angular team on Angular 1 and 2. Um, so we have Igor and Mishko and Brad um, on for that show next week. So check that out. And then as always, follow us on Twitter, Google Plus, and Facebook. Cool. So let's get into Vue. Um, why don't we just start out with what is Vue? Well, um, 
That's a uh, interesting question because uh, I think the the definition of view has somewhat evolved along the way. Um, so it started out as a really humble experiment, I think, like most open source projects. Um, so at that time, I was uh, I was working at Creative Lab and. Um, we used Angular to build a few things, but at that time I thought Angular just brought in too much stuff that I didn't actually need. And I was really interested in how data batting worked. So I set out to build a small prototype, and um, it turned out in, it, it turned, turned into Vue over the time. Um, so for probably the first one and a half years, I um, basically positioned Vue.js as a really thin view layer. Uh, that just gives you the ba most basic data, ba uh, data binding and um, and a way to compose these components together. But um, lately, uh, I I've started as I started to use you to build more complex stuff, and also, you know, uh, greatly inspired by the things happening in the React community. Actually, I'm starting to expand uh, what's available to view. Um, not just to Vue.js core, but a, a surrounding ecosystem of tools that sort of constitutes a um, more framework-like thing, which um, which gives you the ability to sort of, you know, uh, gives you the router, gives you the state management patterns and stuff, and build tools uh, to allow you to build uh, full-scale single-page applications. So so today, I would call Vue a progressive framework, uh, which by that, I mean um, Vue.js core is still this really simple, lightweight, view layer, which you can just drop onto a page and just use. But if you want to, you can go foot, uh, go deeper into the view ecosystem and pick the parts that you need, which they just work together to give you this more like framework-like experience. Cool. So uh, Taylor, what is uh, Vue, like what are your use cases for Vue? So lately I've been using Vue for um, all the applications I build, which I've been building a um, kind of a SaaS billing scaffolding with Vue, but what originally drew me into Vue was it was so approachable, and I'm I'm not a JavaScript expert, as I said at the beginning, so I really needed something approachable that could give me data binding and HTTP calls was basically what I was looking for, and Vue had really great documentation and was easy for me to kind of get into a little bit more than um, React, which not being a pro at JavaScript was a little daunting with kind of the JSX and the compilation and all that. With Vue, I could just kind of like drop in the JavaScript file in my page and kind of just start hacking on it and getting some results. So that's kind of what drew me into the whole ecosystem. Cool. I, th I think that what you say strikes a chord with probably most people watching uh, about how uh, React looked a little daunting. There's a lot of tooling in the JavaScript community right now, and for people who don't do JavaScript a ton, um, I, I can totally see how that would um, not be very attractive, uh, an attractive feature of a framework. Um, so it's uh, cool that Vue allows you to just drop something into into an HTML page and and stuff works. So um, can you talk a little bit about how um, how you see Vue differing from um, like existing frameworks that people might be more familiar with? Um, sure. Um, so <clears throat> I guess the most defining feature uh, from, from the feature set perspective is how uh, Vue is incrementally adoptable, where um, you can it can be as unobtrusive as you want it to be, or it can be um, this whole thing that you want to just adopt, because uh, uh, Vue actually comes with a CLI, which you can just scaffold a uh, complete project with Webpack, hot reloading, uh, long-term cache, and all that out of the box. Uh, so it's it's really um, about just you're free to pick how much you want to use from it. Um, that's from a uh, really high-level perspective. On the lower level, I think the most unique thing about Vue is its reactivity model, which um, uh, uses uh, dependency tracking by converting uh, plain JavaScript objects with getters and setters under the hood, um, which I believe is probably the only framework that has that reliably implemented at the moment. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting choice. I, um, I, there's a lot of like technical trade-offs in, in going that route. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm happy that I've managed to uh, make it work by essentially covering uh, offering 
great performance that's comparable performance to any other mainstream implementations out there in most use cases. Um, so, so that's the technical aspect of it. Uh, and if we want to go into more specifics, um, compared to Angular, uh, Vue definitely takes a lot of takes a lot of inspiration from Angular one, uh, where uh, the the data binding syntax is obviously uh, very Angularish, but um, but there's also this uh, important design decision to make it more approachable. So I basically threw away anything in Angular one that I felt wasn't uh, wasn't a necessity for you to get something working on the page. So that was sort of the initial design process. So uh, the focus on simplicity and approachability is one of the most important thing that I kept in mind when, when I was working on Vue. Um, and compared to uh, React, I guess, uh, it's, it's a really like interesting comparison because um, both are, I think, the VJS Core and React Core both are this like thin view layer that just allows you to just gives you dec declarative views and a way to compose them, right? That's basically all they do. Uh, the the interesting thing is how um, this um, implementation difference led to different sort of development paradigms where um, view is still more or less centered around. Uh, being able to manage your state as mutable objects, where React is going full on with uh, functional programming and immutability, um, which I think is uh, is interesting because um, there are a lot of great ideas that I see in React right now. But I'm also it's a it's a pity that a lot of uh, I see a lot of beginners sort of you know stumble on these uh, concepts when they get started. They're like, oh, I'm overwhelmed by all these things that I don't know yet, and um, uh, sometimes I just uh, I just see that uh, the two projects attack different target uh, target services where um, cater to different needs. Where uh, when some people uh, they don't necessarily want to um, you know be, become a functional programmer uh, to to be able to fully master React, but they still want to be able to build something for the web as fast as possible. Yes, um, so that's something I've been talking about. Where I think the web is is huge and versatile, so different people have different use cases, and it's important to pick the tool that boosts your productivity most. Uh, and you have to just try it for yourself to see uh, which one fits your mental model better. So, cool. Yeah, lots of uh, good information in there. Uh, there's a actually a, a question here on uh, Twitter that is applicable to our current subject. So, uh, I'll go ahead and ask it now. Um, it's from Rainier Capper. And his uh, tweet to JSR question was, um, are there any features you have planned for Vue that will set it apart from other frameworks like React or Angular? So anything that you, like currently doesn't exist in Vue that you're like planning on to make Vue even better? Um, I'd say it's this. Um, well, I, I don't actually have like this sort of like big feature chunk that's in the pipeline. Currently, the plan is to uh, polish the polish the existing three three main pieces, which is Vue.js Core, Vue Router, and Vux, which is a Flux implementation inspired by Redux. Um, so uh, that's the current focus, and I believe uh, the the benefit of Vue is that we have these three pieces that are incrementally adaptable um, that works coherently together. And if you want, it's it's all like designed to work together. Um, so so basically, it's a, it's a set of three incremental steps where you can use to adapt to different use cases, um, which, is, which I feel is something that I haven't seen other frameworks yet, because you see either Angular 2 and Ember are just completely opinionated full stack, where, um, whereas React is great, but the ecosystem is uh, is crazy, right? Um, you, I feel at loss when I'm trying to pick the latest, best thing to use. Um, and uh, sometimes it, it feels like the stack you, you go with for the current month becomes obsolete in, in, in the next, um, because great people like Ben keeps uh, it, it, innovating, right? Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but um, the churn does can uh, you know 
lead to like articles like the JavaScript fatigue thing and all that. Uh, so sometimes I feel like it's 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 worth it to have um to have a framework to that consolidates some opinions and give you sort of a a uh, a set of rules like this is how you do things, but uh, not prescribing so that um, so that you you are only you're forced to go that route if you're going with the framework. So I, I think the flexibility and um, to opt in and out of the opinions is important. Um, uh, I think that's that's the one thing I really want to focus on in, in making Vue different from other frameworks. In terms of pure features, um, we're actually uh, so I, I'm so currently the Vue team is really consists of just a loose group of people, but we're talking about uh, server-side rendering to see if it would uh, would be feasible. Uh, the implementation details would be rather different. Um, so we're exploring a lot of different ways to ha tackle the problem. And on the native front, um, so there is a um, company called Alibaba in China. I don't know if uh, people know about it, but uh, they're pretty big. They're, they're the Amazon of China. Um, and they're working on a uh, native implementation called, well, I probably shouldn't talk about its name in too much details at the moment, but uh, they're working Spoiler. on a uh, native renderer that's uh, loosely based on Vue's uh, JavaScript runtime and the component syntax, uh, which uh, uses uh, the, the template style and script tag in the same file. Uh, it's very closely related to Vue, although uh, I wouldn't call it Vue native, but something to keep an eye on. They're planning to open source it uh, probably by uh, later this year. Um, so uh, that's also something to keep an eye on for. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, um, I I wanted to ask actually ask you about uh, the that one file for everything thing that you were talking about. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, so, so when you just use VJS Core itself, um, you have to basically inline the template string in your JavaScript, similar to how you uh, most people do in Angular two right now, but um, uh, I felt that uh, it would be great if you can have proper syntax highlighting for for your template, for your styles, and for your JavaScript, but I still want to keep them together. The co-location is great because you don't have to open like three files and jump between them when you're working on a single component. And also, um, uh, by putting them in the same file, uh, we are able to do interesting things like, so, so I implemented a... Uh, a loader for Webpack and a transform for Browserify to handle these single file components. So when you when you use them, uh, we get this opportunity at, at compilation time to do interesting analysis on your components, right? So um, ViewLoader and ViewFi has Hot Reload built in. So if you're using them to compile your single file view components and you run it run your app with the, the a, a Hot Load Reload enabled Dev Server, then it just works out of the box. Um, and also, we can do uh, compile time template syntax checking. Checking like we can just like parse the template, see if you have any syntax errors, warn you about it. And we can um, we can do scope CSS by because we have the full parsing of the HTML structure. We have the full parsing of the CSS structure. We can just um, we have them both side by side in the compilation pipeline. So we can do uh, template rewriting and CSS rewriting to to just make scope CSS work uh, seamlessly. Because, uh, so in VJS, in, in single file view components, if you just add a scope attribute to your style tag, then it automatically uh, limits everything to your current template. Um, so you basically get it for free without having to uh, introduce anything different into your uh, work, uh, working process. Um, so all of these are really focused on just making these features as accessible as possible. You don't have to. Um, do extra research to bringing 10 other dependencies into your project just to use them. Um, and, um, and you can also use uh, preprocessors in, in the single file. So say you can use Jade for your templates, and you can use SAS for your styles. Uh, you can even use less than SAS in the same file. Uh, and you can have you can mix scoped and unscoped CSS in the same file. Uh, yeah, basically it's uh, it's really flexible. So um, 
it's it's somewhat inspired by uh, web components because uh, web components are gray. You have a single HTML file and you have everything in there. The problem I have with that is you need a polyfill and you um, we don't have a standardized uh, build pipeline to uh, to you know to crunch all the web components in, into a single thing. Before we have HTTP2 universally available, before we have um, HTML imports actually standardized and implemented in every browser, web components still seem uh, a bit premature for me to uh, to to rely on. I guess um, so. So I feel like implementing a similar uh, mechanism on on top of Webpack seems to be a really good route because, uh, see, Webpack is powerful. Webpack has this ecosystem of all the loaders you can use. It has all these great features. Uh, so what if we can have web web component like syntax powered by Webpack? So that's how ViewSingo components came came about. Cool. Uh, we've actually got a relevant uh, question that's good for uh, Taylor on uh, Twitter. So from Henrique uh, Brennenkamp. Yeah, sorry, I cannot pronounce your name. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the question is, what is the best way to get that hot reloading <coughs> and all view goodness on a Laravel project? So I don't know whether you use the hot reloading stuff, but I, w I did want to ask you what, what your favorite features of view were. So... Um, I haven't used the hot reload myself. The best way to use um, sort of that single file stuff in a Laravel project is to use, we actually have a project called Laravel Elixir, not to be confused with the Elixir programming language, which um, uh, we kind of have a little confusion there sometimes. But Unfortunate namespacing there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, with the Laravel Elixir, it's basically a um, layer on top of Gulp that, you know, Gulp files can get a little complicated at times, um, and they sort of get copy and pasted around over every project you do, it seems like. But with Laravel Elixir, it sort of has really simple syntax where you can just say, like, mix.sass.less.browserify or whatever, but it actually has a Viewify um, extension that Jeffrey Way, who, who wrote Elixir, has provided that basically just lets you drop that right into your Laravel project and start using the single file uh, view stuff right out of the box, basically with just one or two lines of code in your um, Gulp file. So definitely check that out. That's documented on um, laravel.com um, under the Elixir documentation. So, but I haven't really got too much into the hot reloading um, yet, but that would definitely be where to start. I, I think it's all sort of baked into Elixir to set that all up, so it should be pretty easy to get going. So, uh, well, so I just, yeah, I just want to add about the hot reloading in Laravel thing. I remember seeing a, uh, a post on the Laracasts forum of someone getting to work. Um, the thing is, uh, Browserify doesn't come with hot reload out of the box, so you need a plugin called Browserify HMR. Uh, you need to add that plugin to your Browserify compilation, uh, and you also need to use Watchify, which is this like file watching, auto rerunning Browserify version. Uh, but I haven't really implemented like tried uh, hot reloading with Laravel myself, but I. Um, I definitely remember seeing someone doing it on the Laracast forums, so it should uh, provide some guidelines. Yeah. Great. So um, we do have a, a, another couple of questions on, on Twitter, so I'll just jump into some of those. These are good questions. So um, besides, uh, oh, and this is from Ego, um, Egoist. Yep. Um, but uh, besides SSR, so server-side rendering, what does React? Um, um, let's see. What does React can? Uh, what does React do that Vue cannot do well? So, what are some of the things that you're hoping to improve on? Um, yeah, I think uh, there's uh, there's two things that I uh, think React does really well. One is um, JSX really gives you a lot more flexibility in uh, what type of things you want to pass to components as props. Like, you can basically do anything, right? Because uh, it's just JavaScript. But on the other side, I feel it's a, um, a two-sided sword because the, uh, with more power, you have more responsibility to keep things in check. And I often see crazy render functions that uh, are just impossible to read because 
there's just so much logic involved in it. Uh, you first go through like three blocks of conditional logic before you actually see some JSX itself. Um, I feel like it, it, it falls onto the, the developer's responsibility to, you know, to make sure your render function is actually readable. Um, and, uh, but, but JSX does give you uh, more uh, expressive power, I guess. Um, and so I, I think it's a trade-off in terms of template versus JSX, where um, for a lot of uh, UI presentation logic, the, the template markup is a specific design DSL that's limited in power but gives you a um, uh, really, uh, I guess, scannable a visual representation of what the structure is like, while JSX is really focused on the, um, the programmatic nature of things, so the, you know, uh, how you can actually construct and manipulate them if, as you wish. Um, the other thing is uh, how React really plays well with all these functional concepts of um, how you can compose components, just treat them like functions. You have higher order components. You have uh, you just decorate them, and them works. Uh, in Vue, uh, everything is still more or less um, pretty OO. I would say uh, you have component instances. You rely on this a lot. You um, the the way you compose view components is um, somewhat confined by the, the prescribed how what type what the things you can pass in props whatnot and how uh, the slot API works which is loosely modeled after the web component slot API so these are the two things that I really wish I had in in view uh, that that I want to you know take from React but um, it also has to do with how the the underlying implementation difference because React is based on virtual DOM, so it naturally lends itself to a decorative render function like, like using JSX. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I think uh, there are definitely more good ideas to, to borrow. Uh, but at the same time, I think Vue also has its own uh, unique advantage, which is uh, it, it embraces HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and embraces what um, uh, a massive population of web developers are already familiar with, so that uh, they can be more productive with with what with a mental model that they're they're more comfortable with. Cool. Uh, so I'm I'm actually just we're getting a lot of questions on Twitter. So um, unless there's something else that you want to uh, make sure that we talk about, um, I. I think that I'll probably just keep going through these. Actually, sure. you know, I just had a, a good question before I, I go through these. Um, I want to ask a little bit about the technical details of Vue um, mm -hmm. and how, um, yeah, like w when I when I hand Vue a uh, component, what does Vue do with that component? Uh, so if you can just kind of walk us through the technical details and, and also like how the, um, as the user interacts with that component, uh, what happens in those scenarios? Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. So when you, so every view, view application starts with a root instance, right? Similar to how you do like React render, React DOM render a root component, and that root component contains all the other components on the page. So uh, when the root component is mounted, uh, you walk through its template. Uh, View actually similar to Angular One, Vue uses DOM-based templating, so it um, parses the um, the temp. If so, you can actually like, just write your templating it real HTML and let Vue compile it, or you can just use a string and Vue will convert it to a real DOM template. So watch that DOM structure and look for directives and custom components. Um, so when it encounters so, so the compilation pipeline is really similar to what Angular does. It just walks the template, find temp directives and components. Uh, well, in Vue, components are actually directives too, but they have special syntax. So it collects all these directives, um, sort them in priority, and attach them to the, the DOM nodes. Um, so that's the compile compile link process. So it's it's really similar to Angular in that sense, but it's it's really um, low-level details where the user never actually had to touch upon. Um, and when you when Vue encounters a custom component and invokes the um, invokes the constructor of that component to create an instance of it. So 
when you create a uh, view component instance, you call view.extend and give it an object which contains all the options about that component. So um, view will essentially create a constructor uh, that has these options predefined within it so that when you create an instance of that component, it already knows, oh, this is my template, this is my initial state, this is it's just like a React component, I guess, um, except it, it, it uses a template. So uh, then uh, it, it, when it encounters a child component, it instantiates uses a template, create, constructs the actual DOM for that component, and replaces the mounting point, which is the custom element on the page, with that constructed DOM piece. So sort of gradually filling out these custom components with real DOM pieces, um, and eventually filling up the page. So I think, um, so, so the, the difference between this approach and React is we are keeping references to these actual DOM nodes. And we have data bindings. Are these directives instances attached to those DOM nodes? So each directive is responsible for watching some reactive property for changes. So whenever the expression associated with the directive changes, it is responsible to for updating that DOM nodes that it's currently managing. Um, so that's basically what happens. I guess the other interesting part is the reactivity part where uh, because you can pass uh, initial state to these components and when the component bootstraps it will walk the these data objects and convert them into ES5 getters and setters and inside those getters and setters we have a, a mechanism for dependency tracking uh, which um, it's sort of like pops up because like each property essentially becomes a dependency and each directive has an associated watcher. So in Angular, a watcher is purely for dirty checking. So every time something changes in scope, it just Angular just runs every single watcher, reevaluate all the expressions to compare if the new result and the old result is different. But in Vue, uh, each watcher actually keeps track of its dependencies every time it evaluates. So say when you evaluate an expression called A plus B, it knows that it depends on the A dependency and the B dependency. Um, so it would only reevaluate if either A or B changed. Um, so say you have 10,000 watchers on the page and all of them de depend on different dependencies, then uh, when you change one dependency, only one of them would reevaluate and all the other ones just do nothing. Uh, so this sort of gives you a better runtime performance and you don't really need to worry about optimizing it because uh, it just works that way by default. Um, so, so this similar type of dependency tracking is also found in Knockouts and Meteor's uh, original view layer called Blaze. Um, took a few pages from there as well. Um, yeah, I think, I think I covered probably most of it. Uh, I'm sure it's still pretty confusing, but let me know if I can't explain it better. <laughs> no, no, that I think that makes sense. It, let me try and compare this a uh, little bit to React um, for those of uh, our viewers and listeners who are familiar with React. So React solution is anytime you want to ch make a change to a property, uh, a relevant property, you say set state and React will say, okay, let me re-render everything and just see what the what the difference is. Um, whereas yours is a little bit more like specific where you say, okay, this property depends on, uh, like I'm going to track the dependencies of this, this property and anytime, because I have a hook into the getters and setters of, specifically the setters, anytime somebody sets this property, then I can find all of that property's dependence and update those things and, and it cascades from there um, and then you have something to update the view. So what what's the piece... Uh, that no, I, I guess you have a, a hook into when all these things are set and so you can say oh like this property in the template is dependent on this property in the in the model and so I, I need to update that is that like so do you go through and update every piece of the DOM that's dependent on these different data properties yeah um, so 
I, we could, we should probably like go through a very simple example of say you have a text binding, uh, you have a text node, uh, and it's bound to a property on your model, which is like message. Um, so when the view component starts, it converts the dot message accessor, so that whenever you access dot message, it will uh, say, hey, I depend, I'm depending on the message property. The, I, I'm depending on this depth object, which is inside the closure for that accessor. Um, and, and, and then you have this uh, directive, which is a, just a text directive on this text node that says, I am bound to the message property. And whenever it changes, I should set the text content of this text node. Um, so it will run for the first time. And when it runs, it because in order to, to set the message, it has to access the message. So in that process, it knows, hey, this is I have this dependency in my dependency list. And basically, the dependency also keeps track of a list of uh, subscribers, which are these directives. Um, so next time when we set it, uh, the depth will notify all its subscribers saying, hey, I have changed. So the subscriber directive says, OK, you have changed. I have to re-evaluate my expression. And if the, the result is different, I will just update the DOM. So, um, so that process, so I do want to compare to, uh, say, the virtual DOM approach, which um, uh, I, I actually prefer to call virtual DOM sort of like dirty checking on the view structure layer, right? Um, so there are ways you can optimize the virtual DOM diffim by uh, implementing should component update uh, to make it more efficient. Um, but the, the runtime, the default runtime cost is relatively large because you have to render the whole subcomponent tree and then com compare the whole DOM structure to make sure uh, everything has changed is updated. But even if it only changes a single node, you still have to do the whole comparison. Um, Whereas in a dependency tracking scenario, you pay a higher upfront cost because um, the converting these objects to to have getters and setters, and also because all these extra closures and dependency objects that we're creating, there's a bit more upfront uh, work to do. It also has a, a bit more upfront memory cost, uh, but the uh, the benefit is uh, no matter how big your application is, uh, your um, the, the change, the, the amount of uh, computation and DOM updates triggered is always proportional to the amount of data that has actually changed. So uh, if you change a single property, then only the uh, things affected by that property would change. Uh, I'd like to make a few notes here. Um, so <laughs> one of the notes I want to make is that uh, there's a library called Mobax. Uh, I think it's been renamed lately. It was observable before, but everybody was confused, like, how does that relate to observables? Uh, so he just renamed it to Mobax, which kind of implements, uh, I think, a similar model, like reactive model of updates dependent on other updates and computed properties. Uh, so it can work with React. Like, React is not really opinionated about how you kind of do that. Uh, which can be a bit of a pain for like new adopters, but you can adopt similar reactive pattern in React if you really want to. And I guess another one note I wanted to make is that you don't really like this uh, picture of always re-rendering from the top is uh, in React is a little bit simplified. So this is what we say to people when we teach them React, just to kind of keep the picture simple. But it's important that, like, if you have a tree of components and you call a trait somewhere here in the tree, uh, only the pieces below this tree are actually going to be diffed. Uh, and any time should component update returns false, this uh, part of the tree is going to bail out. So if you set straight somewhere in the middle, it doesn't actually like re-render everything from the top. So this is not what happens. And this is what we use, uh, like, in Redux. Uh, we have React Redux bindings, uh, which is a library that connects React Redux in, a, in an opinionated way. And it uses React set sheet onto the hood. But what happens is that uh, if you dispatch an action uh, that changes some parts of your C tree, uh, they have different reference references to 
to different objects. So what happens is that we don't actually re-render from the top in Redux either, because that would not be performant in Relapse. So what we do is when you want to uh, when you want some components to care about the global state in Redux, uh, you subscribe these components with connect uh, uh, component enhancer uh, and specify which parts of the tree they care about. So what happens is that if you dispatch an action and this action changes some parts of the state tree, only the components that are connected are actually going to receive that new state. And it's going to be, uh, we're going to compare the reference right away so those connected components that don't care about this update are going to skip it. So again, it's not as granular as the approach that you described. And in fact, like if the viewers are interested, uh, there is a pull request in React Travel. I think this pull request is closed. I closed a bunch of old pull requests uh, a little while ago. Uh, but it's, it's still easy to find. Uh, I think it's called Expose React uh, Data Tracker as an add-on. So this is an, an implementation of pretty much similar approach where you track everything that render accesses, so you know what to subscribe to. And I'm not sure we actually reached any consensus on this, so this didn't get merged. But we still have discussions about it. Uh, there are plans to have like more granular updates for uh, really uh, like weak use cases where you can't really go the whole React way. So this is still being considered and it's really cool that you're kind of showing how it could be done in, in a performant way in an alternative framework. So props to you for doing that. Cool. Yeah, thanks for that, Dan. That was good. Um, so sorry, Evan, did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, no, I'm good. Yeah. Cool. So there's a question here that I think uh, Taylor could probably speak to a little bit. Um, it is, how should I be architecting my apps with Vue based on feature, all profile functions in one component? Um, and so, yeah, like actual use cases, what's a, what's a good way to structure and architect an app? <laughs> this actually might be better for Evan, but um, it sort of depends, I guess, how you're using Vue because um, I, do, I actually don't use it with the the router or, or or as a single page app, so I structure my app a little bit differently where kind of each page has its own view component, and, it, and it's pretty simple. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of defer to Evan on that because I think he'll be able to give a better kind of in-depth answer, answer on view structure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and like Taylor said, I think it, uh, it really depends on uh, your use case. Uh, similar to uh, if you're using Laravel, and uh, depending on what your app does, um, you would have to consider the trade-offs in whether you should make it a full single-page application. Um, is it Does it have complex uh, UI states that you really want to do all the rendering client-side, or do you just want to keep it full, uh, mostly back-end rendered and just add touches of interactivity on top of those pages? Right? Um, so uh, it, it really depends on the, the actual user experience need of your app. Uh, I think um, so, so for a lot of uh, apps that doesn't really have complex interactivity, then uh, and you would probably be more productive going with the way that you already know how to do. You just render things from the server, and then uh, where you actually need interactivity, you just drop view on the page and uh, have a view instance on each page. Uh, on the other hand, if you are actually going to build a really complex uh, single-page application, uh, then you should probably look into the, the host suite of uh, doing client-side routing with the view router, and uh, it maps your URLs into a nested component tree. Uh, and also, in, if the app gets real big, you want to manage your client-side state with uh, Vux, which is the... Um, the Flux implementation for Vue. Uh, basically, what it does is similar to to all the Flux implementation. It keeps your it, it extracts the state, centralizes the management of your state into stores, uh, so that your components no longer uh, hold the state in different places and try to communicate each other, trying to synchronize them. Instead, um, all the state is kept uh, external to the components, 
they just like get updates from the store, and when they want to change something, you, they have to just make a notification to the store, say, hey, I want to change this piece of state, so that um, it forms this uh, unidirectional data flow where uh, it ensures all your changes to your global state is um, explicit and manageable. Um, so, so as you can see, like there are trade-offs in making your uh, introducing these concepts into your app because um, it may be an overkill for simple scenarios. So, uh, I think it's important to um, sort of understand what each of these pieces do, and then find the balance point for your use case, uh, um, and pick the right tool for your for your thing. I guess the I guess the the good news is because. Um, you can pick as much as you want in, in terms of view because uh, it's just designed to work that way. Cool. Um, we are coming close down to our time now, and so um, I'll, we'll definitely cover some more of these uh, Twitter questions, I think, but I just wanted to make sure that I gave uh, Evan and Taylor and, and Dan, everybody, I guess, uh, an opportunity to bring up anything else that you wanted to before we wrap the show up. Good. Yes. All right. Sweet. We're good. So um, let's go ahead and um, I'll I'll go through a couple more of these uh, Twitter questions and then um, we'll go into our tips and picks. So great. Um, so yeah, uh, Rainer Capper. I I hope I'm saying that name correctly. But uh, the question is, any plans on extending the team for Vue? It must be quite a big project to manage alone. And actually, as an extension to this question. I think that people, like, often our conversations on JavaScript Air come back to open source, um, which I think is awesome because open source is the best. Um, and so maybe you can talk a little bit about managing such a huge project as well. Um, interestingly, uh, I so far I haven't really been working on Vue full time, um, but it does take several, a lot of time. Uh, including a lot of personal time. I think um, I definitely sacrificed a lot of time, say, with my wife uh, for this project because I had to work on it during after work, uh, late at night, and all that. Um, sometimes I feel it's uh, it's really... A, I was able to do it because I didn't feel like it's wor it was work, right? Because I uh, really liked it. I enjoyed working on it. I'm I'm passionate about passionate about the idea. I feel great that my project is helping a lot of people build awesome things in the world. Um, so so that's that's the motivation, right? Like you, when you know uh, you're you're building something that uh, that makes people happier. Uh, you know, it's you're you're doing something meaningful. So I think that's. Um, but but it, of course you you should definitely uh, try to do it in a sustainable way, right? We don't want to uh, we don't want open source maintainers to burn out. I think uh, for me personally, I've been taking an interest in pattern. Like I didn't intentionally do it, but I discovered the pattern is that uh, I would take a break from Vue, like for uh, maybe after a three three month like uh, commit peak, peak, I guess like a commit spike. I would then say, okay, I think uh, it's it's in a good shape right now. I'm just gonna leave it there, take a break from it for for maybe one or two months. Um, if you look at my GitHub commits record, like every year in January, uh, there is like maybe like 10 to 15 days there's no commit at all, uh, which I think it's it's great because um, it just like. It does multiple great things to you because uh, first you you get to recharge personally. Uh, second, you when you walk away from your project for a while, you get a whole new fresh perspective on it. You would um, you'd come up with a lot of new ideas about hey, why didn't I think about this before? Because when you're deep into the project, and you're just like heads down fixing bugs, implementing features. You would sometimes get lost and you're just feel you're too committed to a single direction, but when you take a step back, it gives you more perspective. It gives you um, more ideas on, hey, maybe I could have done it this way. Uh, I think it's important to take breaks uh, from your project, um, even if you're working on it full time. Um, 
And other than that, I feel like I, I'm actually pretty bad at like managing my day-to-day -day productivity. Like I usually work in a very irregular pattern, and I think I want to improve that. Um, but yeah, that's what I have to share. Cool. Yeah, those are some good pro tips. I think actually I'd like to hear some uh, managing life and open source pro tips from uh, both Dan and uh, Taylor because uh, you both are also working on significant open source projects. So Taylor, what do you have to say? So before I started working full time, um, I had a lot of late nights doing open source. I would usually wait until like 9.30 when my wife went to bed and then I would work like 9.30 to midnight or 9.30 to 1 sometimes. And I would do that like three or four days a week at least. But ever since I went full-time, um, I sort of do have a regular schedule. And I've been full-time for um, a year and three months now where, you know, I get to work. I work 8 to 5, but the first um, hour or so I answer emails and stuff. And then probably the next hour I strictly do GitHub pull requests and issues and stuff like that. And then for, like, sort of the remaining six hours is whatever I have planned for the day, um, which lately is this Laravel Spark um, project that I've been working on. But it could be anything else, you know, maintaining Laravel Forge or Envoy or something like that. But I sort of have that same routine every day, and then I use um, Trello and Wonderlist um, quite a bit as well. Uh, in Trello, I actually keep um, a column for each day of the week, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, blah, 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 and then whatever I want to do on that day during the week. And I find that works a little bit better than like me keeping one big to-do list that's sort of a 300-item backlog because I'm sort of forced to allocate the task onto different days and spread it out a little bit. And then for this really simple to-do list, I'll use Wonderlist. But that's sort of like the nuts and bolts of um, the practical ways uh, I use to get things done. The hardest part of maintaining an open source project for me has just been like learning when to say no, um, um, you know, to feature requests. That's always a really hard thing for me when I get a PR and someone's obviously put like quite a bit of time into the pull request and it's just like not a right fit for the project at the time for whatever reason, even if it's a, a decent idea. Um, that's been one of the challenging aspects of open source for me. Yeah, totally. That that happened to me today, and it was kind of sad. Uh, totally makes sense. Like, and I respect, you know, the the author or, or like the maintainer of the project for, you know, scoping down their project. But yeah, it can be kind of sad for a contributor to get rejected. So cool, Dan. Did you have any pro tips about managing life and open source? I don't really think I'm the right person to ask it because. I've been sucking it pretty badly lately, especially um, like I switched from working remotely with small projects and doing open source like free time to having a full-time job doing open source about a specific project. So I'm working on React right now, uh, and this means I don't really like I'm still settling on still figuring out how to allocate the time right now. I just do it randomly, yeah. and I'm procrastinating on a lot of things like email and direct messages and like all this kind of stuff that I used to handle just fine. Right now, I think I haven't visited the Redux repo for like two weeks because I'm just afraid of all these follow-up notifications. But like a good part about it is that uh, I think I did fairly well scoping down my project. Like in case of Redux, uh, there is a uh, a blog post uh, called uh, Finish Your Stuff, which was one of the inspirations behind Redux. Uh, like at the very beginning, one of my goals was to create a project that has a very specific scope and that is possible to actually get done and like move on. And I think in case of Redux, it does what I wanted it to do. And right now, is like issues and pull requests are about documentation, examples, like build infrastructure, but nothing that really is too important. We don't get changes to the source much, so I'm pretty happy just living it, live its own life, and coming back once in a while, I guess. Well, I think that actually is a good pro tip. Um, just like figure out what it means for a project to be done, and then get to that point, and then you know. Then it's done. And if somebody wants it to do something cooler, then they can, you know, build something else. Um, I think that's okay, and that's what open source is all about. Cool, Evan. I think that you wanted to address um, 
uh, Runer's question a little bit more directly. Yeah, uh, sorry I misunderstood the question because it was uh, asking the plans to extend the view team. And uh, in fact, I've already I'm already doing that. Uh, I uh, had a open core for contributors a while ago, and I got like 50 applications. Uh, so I unfortunately I can't take all of them. So I had to you know. So we currently have maybe seven to eight people that uh, that. So I added them all into the Vue.js organization. They're helping out on uh, triage and issues and uh, answering questions and working on uh, feature requests, working on uh, bug fixes. So it's great. Like, um, uh, so previously, I was really doing this all alone. And now, uh, when, when I have a bug, uh, next day, I see a pull request trying to fix it. I'm like, wow, open source is working. So this is great. Cool. Yeah, good stuff. Um, all right, I think we're going to move ourselves into tips and picks and wrap up the show. So um, there are remaining questions in Twitter, and so if you all could just really briefly at the end of the show uh, go to the hashtag JSR question and look at those, I'm sure that people would be really appreciative. Um, so great, I'll go ahead and uh, let's have Dan go first, and then I'll go, and then we'll have our guests go. So go ahead, Dan. I don't really have any tips this time. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Let's just um, keep it. Yeah, sounds good. Um, if you can think of a, one of your favorite songs, you, you tweet plenty about music, so like maybe you can pick one of those. <laughs> so, cool. Um, so for my tip, um, I think I've, I've given this tip before, but I just really believe in it, and the tip is build things to learn things. And my picks are related to this. Uh, so... And just this morning, I enabled Service Worker on JavaScriptAir.com. Um, and so if you go to JavaScriptAir.com uh, and you're on Chrome or Firefox, and then you turn off your network connect connection and go there again, then you should be able to see all the content. Everything that you, like anywhere you navigated to, should all still be available offline. Um, and I did this not because I think JavaScriptAir.com actually really needed this feature, um, but because I wanted to learn something. And so I actually created repeat to do. Um, I, I'll share a link to that, but it's like this little fun app that I built for my wife uh, who wanted to have a to-do list that repeated. And so when you complete one, that item just goes down to the bottom. Um, and so it's just this concept of, uh, and, and that one also is like, that's where I learned how to use Service Worker uh, to have totally offline experiences. And it's also really cool because it um, includes the um, native or what's it native web install thing, and so you can actually add it to your home screen, and it like gives you full screen access, and and it looks like a native app. Um, and so anyway, I just thought that was pretty cool. Build things to learn things. It's a a great thing, and so maybe you should all build uh, a view app to really learn what this thing's all about. Um, <laughs> so cool. Let's go with uh, Taylor. Why don't we have you go next? Okay, so my tip is uh, don't be the smartest person in the room. And that just kind of comes from throughout my programming career, I feel like I've made the most progress where I was around people that were a lot smarter than me at programming. So um, whether it's at your day job or just sort of like at a meetup or something like that, I think it's really beneficial if you can sort of meet someone and, and befriend someone that knows a lot more about a given topic than you do. And, of course, you're going to know something that uh, more about something than they know about some other topic that you can share too, but I just think it's really helpful to grow really quickly in your programming career that way. It seems to help me grow a lot faster than just trying to learn it all on my own. Um, and then my pick was this album I listened to this morning called Star Wars Headspace on Spotify, which is kind of this electronic album that had Star Wars quotes mixed in, which was pretty cool. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> cool. Uh, Evan, we'll have you go next. Okay, sure. Um, so uh, my tips, I kind of mentioned it before, is uh, take a break from your project from time to time uh, just to recharge and get fresh perspectives on, uh, on your project. And um, uh, are we doing picks as well? Okay. Yeah. So uh, my picks, uh, there's a book, CSS Secrets by, uh, by Leah Vibro. I'm not sure if I pronounced her name right, but the book is awesome. Uh, it's probably the best CSS book out there, so get it. Um, and then uh, 
I've uh, I've been obsessed with the game Dark Souls. Uh, I don't actually have a Dark Souls three. It's just out. I I don't think it's even released in the U.S. yet. But uh, I don't have much time to play it. But it's uh, it just is an awesome game. Um, I think that is that's everything. So let me just wrap things up um, for our show. So want to give a shout out to our silver sponsors who also make this show possible: O'Reilly Fluent Conf, Auth Zero, and Trading Technologies. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and then a couple of links for you all: suggest.javascriptair is a place where you can go, or sorry, it's suggest.javascriptair.com. Uh, it's a place you can go to give us suggestions on who should be on the show. And this this show was a result of a suggestion with that form. So uh, we do listen. And uh, then feedback.javascriptair.com is a place you can leave feedback on this show, uh, previous show, or the entire show in general. And then we are working on a newsletter. should be pretty soon. Uh, it will have the show notes and different things like that. So you can sign up for that at uh, jsair.io slash email. I should probably have that be email.javascriptair.com. But um, and then finally, we um, again next week, same time, same place with the Angular team, um, talking about the Angular JavaScript framework. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus to keep up with the latest. And with that, I think we can say goodbye. Uh, so thank you, Evan and Taylor, for coming on to the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>